So for those who uh, don't know me, my name is Keith Christensen. I am a pastor of Christ Fellowship Bible Church, a church that was planted by Calvary a couple of years ago. We meet in the northwest Fort Worth area, Lake Worth, Saginaw. Uh, It's a joy to be with you. Let's open in prayer. God, I pray that you would use this time that we have together to equip us for the work of the ministry. I know that these saints have listened to a lot. God, I pray that you would give them strength to be able still to profit from some of this teaching. God, I pray that you would help us to keep a close watch over our own hearts first and help us to think about how to apply Philippians 4 to our own hearts in addition to those that you send to us to help. God, thank you for this time. God, I I pray that you would bless this teaching, build us up in the faith, and, and help us be more capable ministers of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I hope you know these verses. Uh, These are some of the most important verses for biblical counselors to know and to know well uh, because these verses give very clear instruction about a problem that can plague almost everyone. It's anxiety. I'm going to read them just to get it back in the forefront of your mind. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So first, I want you to consider just the basic parts of this passage. Three basic parts. First, there is a prohibition. Or a, or a negated command against anxiety, be anxious for nothing. And then there is a prescription for prayer, and that's presented as the alternative to anxiety. And then there's a promise of peace for those who pray. So God promises his peace in exchange for our anxiety when we pray. Now, I think these verses can present a a challenge to biblical counselors because these verses address such a practical uh, problem and and offer such practical counsel for how to respond to this problem. And these verses promise something so wonderful, God's peace guarding our hearts and minds. Because of all those things, they are rightfully very well known to many Christians. And that means that people who come to you and, and they're seeking biblical counsel for the problem of anxiety. They probably know these verses. They probably have already tried to apply them. And the fact that they're coming to you means they're probably, at least they don't think, they're experiencing much of the peace that they promise. And so some may wonder, why doesn't this promise of scripture seem to work for me? You know, Jesus said the scripture can't be broken. Some people wonder, is this scripture broken? I wonder if you ever have had this experience. Have you shared these verses with someone to minister to their anxiety only to have them come back and say, yeah, I tried that. It didn't work. Or maybe you've secretly wondered that about yourself and your own anxiety. And then all of a sudden, maybe there's a crisis of confidence in this scripture you know, is this scripture maybe a little, a little too rosy, a little too good to be true, the promise? You know, are these verses really sufficient to address this significant problem? I, I think some will probably view the counsel of these verses as just really reductionistic. You know, like it makes a good Christian bumper sticker, just pray and my anxiety will go away. And maybe this Simple strategy will work for, you know, kind of mild experiences of anxiety for people whose lives are pretty easy or for people who live with their head in the sand, really, about quite a lot, especially painful realities and painful possibilities. And so some might think we we need to move beyond these verses. We need something more sophisticated. We need something more substantial, especially if they think I've tried this. Well, what what is happening? 
Well, I think part of the reason why some see these verses as being very reductionistic is because they have a very reductionistic understanding of them. If your understanding of these verses is, is really thin, then it won't hold up the weight of real life and real anxiety. So the problem is not that these verses are insufficient to address our anxiety, but our understanding or our application of them might be insufficient. And and I think you can understand how this promise works is not just like an on-off light switch, but more on a spectrum. And that the the deeper you go in understanding and applying these verses, the deeper will be your experience of its promise. If you have a shallow understanding and, and a, a kind of a, a shallow application of these verses, then you should expect to receive just a shallow experience of the peace that, that is promised. And, and a misunderstanding of these verses or, or a misapplication of them, we should expect, would leave one outside of the promise that's attached to it altogether. And God's peace would guard our hearts and minds. So I want to help you dig deeper in these verses and, and frame it around... Potential problems with how one is understanding or applying them, which which could impact the degree to which someone experiences the blessing that God promises, the blessing of his peace guarding them. So we're going to poke all along these verses and drill down deep. And these verses are deep, deep wells for biblical counselors, for Christians. So here's the first potential problem. Perhaps one does not really understand what the passage is prohibiting. Is this verse commanding us to stop being concerned about things? Even deeply concerned about things? No. This command cannot mean we are not supposed to be concerned about anything in any sense. And sometimes people misunderstand this command in that direction. As if it's telling us to live a carefree, don't worry, be happy, unconcerned kind of life. Just stop caring about stuff. Well, I'd suggest that's actually sinful apathy. That's indifference towards the needs around you and the responsibilities God has given you. Right? Scripture, as well as common sense, teach us that there would be times it would be wrong not to be deeply concerned about some things. And we can see that this command isn't prohibiting all kinds of concerns when we look at other biblical uses of this same Greek word that's translated as anxiety here in Philippians 4, 6. So other times that Paul uses this same Greek verb, be anxious or to care, to be concerned, worried, or the noun form of this same word are the four that I've listed here on your notes. Now, one other time, it's helpful in explaining Philippians 4, 6. Earlier in Philippians, Paul uses the same word, Greek word, to talk about Timothy. And he says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's the word translated, be anxious in 4.6. I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely anxious about your welfare. Should Timothy stop that? No. He uses the same verb positively in other places. 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and 33 says, unmarried Christians are able to be singularly anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. Married Christians must also be anxious about how to please their spouse. And the Bible saying both of those things are good and right, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, the Apostle Paul spoke of the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Your, your translation might, might say concern or something, but, it, but it's the same word. And so some translations have anxiety there. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 25, along the same line, teaches God's design for the church that all the members of the body would have the same care or the same concern. That's the noun form of the same Greek verb, be anxious, for one another. So you could translate that verse. Technically, all the church members should have the same anxiety for one another. What is anxiety? It is just concern. Now, now, the way I'm using that word is tripping you up because usually we only use the word anxiety to refer to concern, a wrong kind of concern, right? But it's helpful to understand what we're talking about if you understand that really we're just talking about concern and care. 
So this scripture passage is not telling us to get rid of all concerns. It, it, that would toss out the window godly concerns. This is a prohibition against being wrongly concerned somehow. Okay, what does that mean? I want us to zoom out, consider the, the teaching of the whole New Testament. And when we do that, we see being wrongly concerned, or what we might say is sinful anxiety instead of just godly concern. It can be measured along two lines. So I want to invite you to, to turn to a handout at the back of your notes, the New Testament verses on anxiety and concern. And I put this on a one page in the back so you could like, make copies of it and give it to a counselee perhaps. Uh, the, on this passage, these are all the New Testament verses where the Greek verb, word, verb and noun form for anxiety, worry, care, concern is used. This would be a good homework assignment. I've given it. You, you give someone all these references and say, okay, what, is, what does the Bible say really about how our anxieties or concerns? How do these verses, how can you fit your concerns in light of all that the New Testament says about this issue? And when we look at these verses, we can see, I think there are two main factors that make one's concern or anxiety either commendable or sinful. And, and what makes the difference? One would be the object of your concern. The object of your concern. So what are you most concerned or worried about? What is most worthy of your concern? Remember again, those examples from Paul of godly concern. So if we look at, at the New Testament uses of this word, I think we find three main alternatives or three sets of opposing concerns. And the first would be, again, I'm just reading from your handout. We should be most concerned about God, his glory, his kingdom, eternal things, pleasing and knowing him instead of being most concerned about the things of this life and the world. Where am I getting this? Okay, Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, the Gentiles seek after those things. Instead, you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Be concerned about something that's more worthy of your concern. In Luke 10, now the scripture reference there should not be Luke 10.1. That's a misprint on your notes. It's Luke 10.41 and 42. Luke 10.41. That's Martha and Mary. Remember, Martha is serving, and, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary, and that's the good portion that Mary chose, which will not be taken away from her. What is that in context? Knowing Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from him. Then on the flip side, Jesus warns, for example, in Mark 4, in, Luke 20, in Matthew 13, that, that some will hear the word of God, but the cares of this world, it's the anxieties, the anxieties of this life, the anxieties of the world will choke out the word so it doesn't bear fruit. Luke 21, 34, speaking about the second coming, Jesus says, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with the cares or the, the anxieties of this life. And that day comes suddenly upon you like a trap. So all these verses, right, we should be most concerned about God, his glory, his kingdom, pleasing him, knowing him, instead of being most concerned about the things of this life in this world. The New Testament verses using this Greek word show us a second set of opposing concerns. We should be most concerned about the good of others, especially their spiritual good. All those verses I just read from Paul's letters are examples of that. Instead of being most concerned about the interests of self, be anxious to please God and spouse. I'm anxious for the spiritual well-being of the churches. Be concerned about the well-being of your fellow members. Timothy is concerned for your, for your well, welfare, whereas all the others, they only seek their own interests. And that, that connects with what he said earlier in Philippians 2. Don't look after your own interests, but also the interests of others. And then here's a third set of opposing concerns. We should be most concerned about the responsibilities of today instead of the things of tomorrow in the future. Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And then he didn't say, so just don't worry about anything. He said, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
if, if you'll right, don't read too much into these words, but worry about today. Okay, not worry in a sinful way, but you understand, right? And and James four, Luke twelve, in the same vein. So gathering up all these Bible verses, we can say when we're anxious. When we feel very concerned, we must learn to ask, are the main objects of my concern the possibilities of tomorrow or the responsibilities of today? The interests of self or the good of others? The glory of God and his kingdom or the things of the world in this life? You have to help the anxious to examine themselves. What are you most concerned about or concerned about most persistently? That's part of the calculus for how we... Minister, we should be most concerned about God, others, today, and eternity. Now, the second aspect of sinful anxiety, and and here's where I I needed to show you those things. It will be helpful later, but also so you know what Philippians 4 is not saying. It's not saying eliminate all concern. Secondly, Scripture commands us to consider... What are we doing with whatever concerns us? Even with good and godly concerns, or we could say even with just normal concerns. Are we trusting God with them? So the object of our concern, but we also must look at the object of our trust. Whom or what do you trust with all that concerns you? And reading from your handout, even if we are concerned about the things most worthy of of caring about, we must trust the Lord in his word with all our concerns. Even concern rightly directed, that is, at an appropriate object, as the Bible defines it, it can still be sinful, that concern, if we're not trusting God with it. So this is Philippians 4, but this is also 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties, everything that concerns you, cast it on him because he cares for you. Right? Don't carry the burdens of your concerns on yourself. Your shoulders can't carry the load. You're not God. Cast them on him. And this is the clear emphasis of the command in Philippians 4.6. Because again, this prohibition pertains to all our concerns. Be anxious in this sense about nothing, nothing. Instead, in everything, by prayer, let your requests be made known to God. That's how we cast concerns on him. So in summary, sinful anxiety is being overly concerned about the wrong things and or not trusting God with all the things that concern us. And the biblical perspective then is not to try and get rid of all concerns, but to redirect concern. First, to redirect your concern towards those things God says are most worthy of your concern. And then to redirect all your concerns to God through prayer. That's the big picture. Now, with with that in mind, we're ready to understand exactly what is being prohibited in Philippians 4. So turn back to where we left off in your notes and you're going to find this explanation typed out with a a big blank to fill in. Not too big. All right, since, and here, based on everything we just said, since the command be anxious for nothing does not mean total freedom from all concerns. Hope you agree with that. And since the alternative to this command is prayer in everything. Therefore, we know this prohibition is ultimately against worrying self-talk, self-reliance, and self-sufficiency. So here's how I might explain that to someone. In sinful anxiety, we just talk to ourselves about what concerns us. In the spin cycle of our minds, we we rehash again and again all in our head that might go wrong, all that we could do to prevent that from happening. And we just turn it over in our thoughts over and over. And often it's a matter we can't presently do anything about. And so there's only one thing we can do about it, and that's just worry. And so we do. We have just a mental conversation with ourselves about our concerns. And this verse is telling us to stop that spin cycle of self-talk and tell God. And the verse says, don't just tell God, but, but ask God to do something about it. Make requests known to him. Bring petitions or supplications. Ask God to act 
and bless and protect and, and save and provide and comfort and strengthen and be near. And these kinds of requests show that we are relying on him to prevent something not good from happening and not just relying on ourselves. This shows how we are counting on him. He must be the one to bring about the good that we are concerned might not happen. Praying. That's how we show we believe, for example, Psalm 127 here. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Romans 11.36, from him and through him and to him are all things. It is by bringing God requests that we trust, okay, he is the ultimate source and accomplisher of everything good. So when Philippians 4 is teaching us prayer is the opposite of anxiety, it's teaching us that prayer is how we are relying on him with our concerns, whereas anxiety is where we are just relying on ourselves. What, what can we scheme? What can we figure out? And that teaches us uh, a painful truth that um, anxiety, sinful anxiety, is a way which, in which we trust ourselves as if, as if we were the ultimate source or accomplisher of good. It, it, it's a functional way to place uh, faith in self instead of in God. It, it is what scripture would call by another name pride. And, and 1 Peter 5 connects casting your anxiety on God with humility. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. How do you humble yourself like that? Casting all of your cares on him because he cares for you. So when you're anxious, you need to humble yourself, trust that all good comes from him, and do that practically in prayer. So be clear with your counselees what this passage is prohibiting. If you lead them to think this verse means they just need to stop being concerned about anything in any sense, it won't work. Be anxious for nothing. It's a prohibition against prayerless, self-talk, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. All right. Any questions about what exactly this passage is prohibiting? I remember after early after I became a Christian ministering to some people along those lines, poor people, you know, I said, I'm really concerned about stuff. And I would say, oh, yeah, well, the Bible says don't, you know. <laughs> and that was easy for me to say as, as someone who's more given to apathy, right, than anxiety. So it's helpful. Be clear. What exactly is this passage prohibiting? All right, next potential problem. Maybe one's not understanding what the passage is prescribing. It says, let your request be made known to God. But if, they, if, if someone says, I am bringing requests to God when I feel concerned, and I don't feel like I'm experiencing any of God's peace, even though I'm trying to do this. All right, let's probe. Let's ask what's going on here. What is the main focus of the request they're bringing? What is it they're, they're ultimately wanting as expressed in the requests they bring to God? And remember what we discussed earlier. The first way to assess, assess the righteousness of our concern is what is the object of your concern ultimately? What, what are you most concerned about? What, what are you treasuring most? Where your treasure is, there your anxiety will be also. Matt, Matthew 6. <laughs> I didn't expect people to laugh at that. You're just tired. Sometimes when I'm tired, I laugh at no, really, though, Jesus said that um, Matthew six, where he says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, where it starts with therefore. And it comes right after him saying, don't store up treasure on earth, store up treasure in heaven. And then he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two gods. You'll either serve God or money. Therefore, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or where or your life. All the Gentiles seek after those things. You seek first God in his kingdom. That is, you, you tr treasure heaven. You treasure God. Make God be your God, not, not your money. 
whatever you're treasuring, whatever you are most, whatever you most treasure is what you're going to be most concerned about, right? And, and so what you're wanting is going to shape what you feel anxious about. It's when something you treasure is threatened. Okay, so what is it that they're ultimately wanting as expressed in the request they bring to God? Could it be that their requests to God are actually just further expressions of the heart idols that might be driving their anxiety in the first place? All right, I want you to imagine. There's a man who's very anxious because his 401k is doing bad, 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 bad. And he's like, oh no, all this money I've saved for, it's leaving. And he wakes up and he checks the stock market again. He's like, oh no. And he feels very anxious for this. And you say, listen, bring your request to God when you feel anxious. And imagine that this man says, okay, I'm going to do that. Oh, I feel real anxious about my 401k. God, please turn the stock market. Please, God, please, God, please don't let more money go out of my 401k. Is that man going to experience God's peace? He's bringing requests. Now, what is he most concerned about? Right. Uh, imagine imagine a, a girl who's just really anxious. She wants to get in law school or something. And she's really, really anxious about her grades in this one class. So she can do that. If she's very anxious and you tell her, you need to pray. Let, let your request be made known to God. And she says, okay, every time that I feel anxious about this, I'm going to pray to God. God, please make me, help me to get good enough grades to get into law school. God, please help me to get. If that's what she cares about most, then it could be that the request she's bringing to God is just an expression of the same heart idol that's causing her to be anxious in the first place. And James 4 says, it's in the context of anger, but we can apply it to anxiety too. James 4 says, you don't have because you don't ask. But sometimes you ask in prayer and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And in context, he's talking about heart idols. God's not going to answer our prayers in a way that makes him an accomplice in our idolatry. Okay? So, so if you... Um, well, I'll leave it at that. We should not expect these kinds of requests will bring God's peace. Along the same lines, right? I, I think you can use Philippians to, to teach this principle to someone. You don't have to go to Matthew, but consider the broader example of Paul's heart in Philippians. <laughs> Okay, Paul's in prison when he writes this. Paul, Paul doesn't know if he's going to live. And the same person who said, be anxious for nothing, is the same guy who said in the same book, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If I lose everything and I still have Christ, I am good. Right, can you imagine what kind of impact that perspective has on what you get anxious about? And, and what kind of impact it has on the kinds of prayers that you bring to God when you're anxious? That's the heart that is primed to have God's peace guard them when they get worried and pray about something. It says, I want the surpassing worth of knowing Christ above all things. Back in Philippians 1, Paul wrote about the possibility he might lose his life. He said, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and, and to die is gain. If I die here in prison, I still have Christ. I mean, again, imagine what kind of perspective that has on, on what he would get anxious about and what, what, how God's peace could, could calm him in, in Response to the requests he would bring. If he has this heart, as, as long as I can honor Christ, whether I live or die. And, and this treasuring Christ is a large part of why Paul could say in chapter 4, what he did. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And again, imagine what kind of impact this perspective has on what you get anxious about. I might end up in need. I might end up hungry. I might be brought low. I've learned to be content. I have Christ. Now, what if, what if what Paul wanted most above all things was not to die in prison? 
or not to face some kind of lack or not to lose some kind of worldly possession or position or status that he had in his former life. How would that affect even the request that he brought to God? And affect his ability to know God's peace instead of anxiety. It would have affected it. And, and here's one big reason why. Because God never promised Paul that he would never know any lack. God didn't promise Paul he would always know plenty. God didn't promise Paul he would make it out of prison. God didn't promise Paul people would think well of him. And it's hard to trust God for something that he hasn't promised. Isn't it? So, so here's another good test along these lines is do the request that someone is bringing line up with what God has promised to give in scripture and what has God promised to give us in scripture? Everything that we should be most concerned about and care about in Luke 12, right after Jesus, in Luke's version of Jesus saying, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or wear. Then he says, instead, seek first the kingdom And then the next verse says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's promises meet the things that we should care and be concerned about most. He's promised to to give these things to us for our good. So are the requests that they're bringing according to God's will? I think 1 John 5, 14 and 16 is a helpful parallel. 1 John 5 says, this is the confidence we have toward God. That if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. That sounds like an experience of peace to me. We know what we have, what we've asked of God, when we ask according to his will, and we know that we ask according to his will when we ask for what he's promised to give us. And if we bring requests to him based on his promises, we have confidence. We have confidence in him, the verse said, that he has heard our prayers and that he will answer our prayers. And if you bring requests to God and you're confident that he's heard you and will answer you, the peace of God guards your heart and mind. So again, Paul's Paul's prayer in prison, okay? I think maybe we we would think it would go something like this. He wasn't just saying, God... Please don't let me die in prison. Please don't let me die in prison. Please don't let me die. He, it would be right and even normal for him to be concerned about dying in prison. But again, what are you most concerned about? God, please don't let me die in prison. This is not what I want. But ultimately, God, whether in life or death, I want Christ to be honored in my body. Okay. Uh, or, or again, think about the girl and her grades. If she's just thinking, God, please help me to make good grades so I get into law school. right? God hasn't promised that she would get into law school. And so it's hard for her to feel confident that God is going to give her those things that she's asking for. And so what is she left to do? Well, she's left to try and scheme on her own about how she can accomplish that. Because God hasn't promised that's going to happen. Right? All right, any questions about that? Ask people, tell me about the requests you're bringing to God. Ask them to journal. What are the requests that you're bringing to God if you don't seem to be experiencing any peace in response to them? Maybe the problem is, well, what are you most concerned about? Maybe that's what needs tinkering. All right, now next, here's another potential problem. Are they truly praying? Now this is... Well, I'll just say it. Okay. Are they pursuing true personal communion with God as they bring their requests? Or are they more so using the form of prayer like a religious relaxation technique? Okay. Um, if you understand what I'm saying there. We live in an age that is, that is obsessed with the therapeutic, the ascendancy of, of the therapeutic. Okay, so some try to use Christianity for therapeutic ends. And, and make Christ just a means to achieving like inner wellness and mental health. I, I want good mental health. What can I... Oh, maybe Jesus will help me. Maybe Philippians 4.6 will help me. Or, or you know, self-care. You, you see a lot of books and, or blogs that use that language. Okay, so Philippians 4.6 and 7 are one of those passages, especially of being misused in this way. 
And people want relief from the unpleasant experience of anxiety. They want inner peace. Verse 7 seems to promise it. And so, okay, well, this verse says the key that unlocks that door is prayer. So then they may try and use the form of prayer like, like some kind of therapeutic self-help strategy. As if, right, some people cope with anxiety by taking deep breaths, others by taking a hot bath, others by taking a long walk, others by taking a glass of wine, and others who are more religiously inclined uh, just say prayers about what's concerning them to try and calm down. And again, prayer becomes just this like religious relaxation technique. I've seen this. That's not true prayer. That, that, that is Christian-ish self-help. Spir- it's spiritual self-soothing. And ironically, it, it's, the, it's a way of turning the command to pray and to settle trust in self again. Right? If I just say the right mantras enough, then peace will come down. The form of prayer. It, the form of prayer can be a kind of, just a religious kind of self-talk again. So if someone told me they were very actively trying to pray in everything about all their anxieties, but they weren't really experiencing any peace as they did so, I may want to ask questions along these lines. Are you truly praying? When you, when you present your request to God, are you truly seeking personal communion with Him? Are you seeking His face of the living God and entrusting yourself and your concerns personally to the person of the living God. Not just trying to escape the unpleasant experience of anxious feelings. Okay, I hope that's clear enough. Now again, uh, we, we could ask, is someone truly praying? We could ask, what are they bringing requests about? We should also consider, how are they bringing their requests to God? In what manner? With thanksgiving. That's a good thread to pull. Again, you can, right, if, if you ask someone to, to journal their request or something, or just ask them, when you pray, when you're anxious, kind of show me what that's like. Tell me. It, do, are they bringing them with thanksgiving? Now think carefully about how thanksgiving fits in with the rest of verse 6. This is not simply saying we need to bring prayers of thanksgiving in addition to our prayers of petition It's saying with thanksgiving, that prepositional phrase is actually qualifying the command of how we bring requests to God. So it's not like we talk to God, we bring requests to God about what concerns us. And then when we're done with that, kind of, I don't know, almost like a distraction technique to get our minds off that, then we thank God for other things too. Now this is saying you bring requests with thanksgiving. Request thankfully. Bring petitions Bring thankful petitions. First, First Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians 5.20 says, Give thanks for everything. So we're supposed to find ways to thank God for and in the very things about which we are anxious in bringing requests to God. If you can't think of anything else, at the very least, you can always thank God for receiving your requests. You can thank him for how he will answer them, trusting that he will, trusting whatever he ordains is right. Don't just thank God in addition to bringing requests. Bring thankful requests. Here's another important qualification, how we bring requests to God in putting off anxiousness, bring requests in everything, in everything. Not only when we're experiencing the inner crisis of very strong anxiety. No, um, Jesus is my e-break kind of living. You know, if things get, okay, if things get really bad, my anxiety, when my anxiety gets really bad, all right, I'll, I'll do it, I'll pray. No, it says in everything, doesn't it? Not just when you feel especially anxious. And in this kind of life, Philippians 4 is commending the same kind of life that's described in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18. Pray at all times in the Spirit. If, if bringing prayers to God is what you only do when you're having an inner emergency of strong anxiety, 
Instead of what you do as a lifestyle, even for small concerns that are not that just experientially alarming to you, then you're not fully availing yourself of the peace God offers in verse 7 because it says in everything. And you may find it difficult to pray in those moments of your most intense anxieties if those are the only moments you try to bring requests to God. 1 Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on him as often as you have them. This is, this is a, a lifestyle strategy, not just an ER strategy. Listen to this counsel from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, never keep a trouble half an hour in your own mind before you tell it to God. As soon as the trouble comes, quick, the first thing, tell it to your father. Remember, the longer you take telling your trouble to God, the more your peace will be impaired. The longer the frost lasts, the more likely the ponds will be frozen. Your frost will last till you go to the sun. And when you go to God, the sun, then your frost will soon become a thaw. Your troubles will melt away, but do not be too long. The longer you are in waiting, the longer will your trouble be in thawing afterwards. Wait a long time till your troubles get frozen thick and firm. It will take many a day of prayer to get your trouble fought again. Away to the throne as quick as ever you can. Do as the child did when he ran and told his mother as soon as his little trouble happened to him. Run and tell your father the first moment you are in affliction. Do this in everything, in every little thing. In everything by prayer and supplication, make known your wants unto God. Especially when we, I thought about that quote by G.K. Chesterton um, when he said, the problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting, but that it's been found difficult and left untried. And I think the same thing applies to these verses, especially when you consider it, it says, in everything by prayer and supplication. The problem is not that people have tried these verses and found them wanting, but, but they've found actually doing what it says is, is not that easy. It's committing a whole lifestyle. And so it's been left rather untried. Now next, in, in addition to considering whether or not a person is bringing requests with thanksgiving and in everything, I think you can consider how they're bringing requests to God. And by that I mean, as, as it's written on your handout, as they bring requests to God, what is their active conception of who he is? If they're truly praying, truly seeking the face of God, all right, well, what is, what is their active living conception of who they're bringing their request to? And, and we could bring all kinds of verses into this. I'll read just a couple. Isaiah 35, 4. I love this. It says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God. 1 Peter 5 6 and 7, remember that? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Okay, as you cast your anxieties on him in prayer, remember, he is mighty and he cares. Uh, Pastor Bragg Bigney, I heard him once say that too often people have a general, vague, distant view of God and a living, close bright view of their problem. Bring requests to God. Well, that little word in verse 6 is a big word. The word God. Who is he that you're bringing requests to? Are your counselees thinking well about who they're talking to in prayer and who they're entrusting their concerns to? Okay. Now let's transition to thinking about um, the third part of the passage, and we'll go through these next, next three more quickly. We have to. Uh, there could be problems in how one is understanding the prohibition and the prescription, but also with how one is understanding the promise of verse 7. Right? Perhaps they don't understand what the passage is actually promising. And in light of what we've seen so far, I, I think it's clear this promise is not that God would spare us from ever feeling concerned about anything. Our hearts or minds will be guarded, but, but to what end? All right, well, the word picture for this gift of peace is military. In verse 7, the peace from God stands like an armed guard inside of you and is protecting your mind, protecting your heart. And it's like when you cast your burdens on him, 
He, he activates a, a peacekeeping security force inside of you to watch over your thoughts and your desires to help you to trust in him and to hope in him and to rest in him and to have the strength that you need to continue to be faithful to him. This is not a promise that he will eliminate all concerns, but that you will be spiritually protected. So your faith does not fail and you're able to keep functioning in moment by moment, faithful obedience to God. And very likely at the same time, your concerns will feel lighter, but it's not because you start caring less, but it's because you have uh, God helps you to have just a quiet confidence in him. You, You really do trust him. He helps you to do that as you entrust these things to him. And as you entrust your concern to him, there, there's a holy rest that comes from that heart posture of faith. Again, again first, first John 5, this is the confidence we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We, we have that confidence and we know that we have the things that we've asked him in accordance with his will. I think maybe a good illustration of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He's very concerned, right? And he told his disciples, my soul is sorrowful even to death. So what did he do? He went to pray. God, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. It says he was in agony. His sweat became like great drops of blood. He prayed like this. And then, and then what happened? After that, he came to his disciples and said to them, The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. He left that time of prayer ready to faithfully obey his Father. Another thing, the, the peace promised in this verse, you can think of it, this is not a one-time, once-for-all quick fix solution. As I said before, it's a way of life, casting cares upon God moment by moment each day. So, so this promise, you should not expect like, hey, I prayed a lot about this thing yesterday and I still feel anxious about it today. It's not working. Where's the peace? No, ongoing peace will come from ongoing prayer and faith. And I think, again, the example of Paul is also helpful to, to see this in action. Remember 2 Corinthians 11, again, what did Paul say? There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the, church, all the churches. It didn't happen for Paul. He's like, well, I spent a lot of time praying for the church in Rome yesterday, and I'm still really concerned about them today. What did he do? He, he prayed. Paul did what he told the Philippians to do in 4, 6, and 7. I'll just give you a few examples. Romans 1, 8 through 10. He said, I thank my God for all of you. God is my witness. Without ceasing, I mention you. Always in my prayers. And for the time's sake, I, I won't read more examples. But if you read Paul's letters, that, that's all over. So many churches, he said, without ceasing, I pray for you. And I thank God for you. How did Paul respond to the daily pressure of the concern he, or anxiety he had for the churches. He brought petitions to God for them without ceasing and with thanksgiving. So that can be helpful too to, to show Paul's example. Now finally, I see um, you should connect in verse 7, the peace of God guarding us with what it says in verse 9. The God of peace will be with us. God of peace will be with us. So the peace God promises us, you shouldn't think of as some like abstract, impersonal force that a distant God sends to us. But the peace of God guarding us is actually the God of peace in us, with us, giving us grace, helping us, shepherding us, leading us beside still waters, restoring our, our souls. This is a personal peace. Now, here's one important implication of this truth leading into the next point, that we should not expect God's peace to guard the hearts and minds of people who don't have God's presence dwelling in them. 
This promise about peace does not apply to every person on the planet. It applies to those whom God personally indwells. Christians. Christ dwells in those who trust in him to take away their sin, to make them right with God. And this limitation of the promise is explicit in verse 7. Look at how verse 7 ends. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This peace will not be found by those who are not in Christ. Does not the Bible say there is no peace for the wicked? So even if someone is not walking in step with this, it is trying to walk in step with the instructions of verse 6. If they are not in Christ Jesus, this peace will not be theirs. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. In him we are given every spiritual blessing. Peace of God guards people who, who first have peace with God because they have their sins forgiven. So before you help your counselees bring your, their anxiety to God, you, you need to help make sure that, that their enmity with God is something that has been addressed through faith in Christ. And, and I suppose there are probably many through history who are not actually born again, not actually trusting in Christ for salvation, who have read these verses in Philippians, decided to give the commands a try, because, hey, you know, peace instead of anxiety, that sounds nice. And then, and then they find it doesn't work, no peace. And so they conclude, like, ah, see, this Bible stuff is bogus. They didn't read the verse closely enough. This progression, anxiety, prayer, peace, that holds together only in Christ Jesus. Now, related, um, Christians also need to remember this peace is found in Christ Jesus. It's true that, that by faith we are objectively united to him. We are in him irrevocably through our faith in him. But... The Bible also teaches many of the blessings of our union with Christ are only experienced by us, are only enjoyed by us as we abide in him. As we are actively, consciously trusting in, depending on him and what he did for us. We must continually set before our eyes Jesus and what he did for us. And if we're doing that, if we're abiding in Christ, in, with that kind of lively gospel faith that will help to relativize our other concerns. And it will help us to, to stay convinced God really does care about us. If he did not withhold his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So seek peace through prayer in Christ Jesus. Abide in him. Don't, don't set your hope somewhere else other than the grace God gives in Jesus Christ as you pursue this peace through prayer. Now, lastly, a person could feel like Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are not working if they are failing to understand or apply other related instruction from God. And I have especially in mind the immediate context of these verses. So at least how it is in my ESV, Philippians 6 and 7, it's not the beginning of a paragraph, comes in the middle. I think that's a, that's a right judgment of a thought that begins in verse 4, which says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Treasure him. Treasure him. Seek the happiness of your soul in the Lord always, no matter what's happening. Have the perspective that, pursue that perspective Paul had in, in Philippians 3. I count all things as rubbish in comparison with knowing Christ. And I think we've said plenty to, to maybe help you see how this rejoice in the Lord always is really connected to what people are anxious about and, and the pursuit of peace in response to that. So, so again, if you're trying to just minister these two verses, six and seven, you can pull in a lot that I've, a lot that we've talked about as far as anxiety and the importance of caring most and treasuring most God and his kingdom, etc., Pull that all in by just pointing out verse 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is related instruction. The, the command to pray for peace is in the shadow of this, that you would pursue joy in the Lord above all things, through all things. It says always. All right, then the next verse, actually the, the words right before the command, the passage we're looking at, it says, the Lord is at hand. 
The Lord is at hand. Now this could mean just that the Lord is present with us generally. And that, that helps us in our anxiety, sure, surely. I think it's better to understand. You, you study and make a judgment yourself. But I think that it's better to see this as a reference to the nearness of the Lord's return. Jesus as at hand. He, he is near. He's ready to come and judge the living and the dead and save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that second uh, truth, this second coming, that is powerful fuel to fight anxiety. Right? Isaiah said, the anxious heart needs to hear that the, that the Lord is coming. Say to the anxious heart, behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God. He will come and save you. So invite your counselees, using verse 5, to consider all they're anxious about in light of the second coming. How will the return of Jesus address the things that they're concerned about? Or how will the return of Jesus show that some of the things they're concerned about doesn't actually matter all that much, right? A lot of what we're anxious about is is not going to matter a hill of beans when Jesus returns and we appear with him in glory. And remember Luke 21 Jesus said, he talked about the cares of this life, the anxieties of this life in light of his return. Don't let your hearts be weighed down by the anxieties of this life that the day of my return comes upon you like a trap. Think about the nearness of the Lord. And then also don't miss the instructions right after it. After we're told to, to, to pray in everything for God's peace, We're told whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Okay, So don't talk to yourself about your concerns. Talk to God about your concerns. And then talk to yourself about God. Meditate on these things. Talk to yourself about God's word, whatever is true, whatever is lovely. And you can use even these... um, Adjectives in verse 8 to, to help you meditate on Scripture. You could say, after you pray about your requests, start to set your mind on things above and, and think, at, take a verse of Scripture and ask yourself, what is praiseworthy about this verse? What is lovely about this verse? What is honorable about this verse? Etc. Okay. So, so sometimes after you pray about what's concerning you, then you need to give your mind a different job. And, and think about, ponder these, these things, the excellencies of the Lord and his word. And then finally, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. Practice, act, do something, do something godly and loving for the glory of God and the good of others. Following Paul's example, focus on your present today, your present responsibilities before God and get busy, get after them, fight anxiety with action, pursue practical deeds of love for God and neighbor, practical deeds of obedience, present faithfulness in all current responsibilities. And as you do, don't work in a self-trusting way, but have the heart of Psalm 127. It's vain if I watch over the city unless the Lord watches it. So, so work in it still depending on God to bring about the ultimate good that you hope is accomplished through your work and through your ministry. All right, well, um, there's, some, there's another handout there to look at, but I'll leave that to you. In summary, if someone ever tells you that these verses are insufficient to address their anxiety, they aren't working, there's so many ways to go deeper with them. Okay? Explain more fully what be anxious for nothing means. Examine the request to bring, they're bringing to God. What are they asking? Press on the phrase in everything. Press on the phrase with thanksgiving. Press on the phrase to God. Press on the phrase by prayer. Press on the phrase in Christ Jesus. Explain more fully what this promise of peace is. Show them the example of Paul. How he responded to the daily pressure of concern for the churches. Show them the example of Paul, the kind of heart he had, that he loved Christ most, and he was, so therefore he was content, whatever happened. Highlight the immediate context of the verse. Okay? I, I hope you see now that, that Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it's not just a nice, cute VBS slogan for a Christian t-shirt. These are deep wells. Deep wells. 
that you are, you're never going to hit the bottom of, of these verses in how you, especially how you seek to apply them. You can always go deeper with a counselee in how they're trying to apply these verses. And so, therefore, you can always use these verses to help a counselee have a deeper experience of the peace of God. And these are the words of God. God is not a liar. God will vindicate these words. If people really do understand these things and they're trying to apply them, God will give his peace. All right. God, I pray you would help us to minister these truths ably. And we ask you to do what you've promised. We do ask you to watch over these words of you and and vindicate them and give peace to the people we're trying to help as they try to apply these verses and give it to us as we try to apply them to our own hearts. And God, help us please not to be um, hypocrites who don't do that. God, thank you for all that these dear saints have learned yesterday and today. God, I pray that you would help them to remember a lot of it, surprise them by how much they remember and are able to use uh, to help others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.